0: A child is rejected by his community, forced into poverty, kidnapped, enslaved, and then he escapes, becomes that community's leader, unites his country's warring factions, creates the greatest army the world has ever seen, and builds an empire that spans half the globe. Which makes me wonder... Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Holly what, why no one's ever put it on the big screen. I'm Mike Vago, author and regular contributor to The A.V. Club, and just me this week as I want to talk about an era of history that's fascinated me for a long time. But first, a note on a future episode. When I started the podcast, one of the first ideas I had was to talk about Buckaroo Bonsai against the World Crime League, the never-produced sequel that was teased in the ending credits of the 1984 cult classic The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. The original film stars Peter Weller as an unflappable test pilot, neurosurgeon, physicist, and rock musician who leads a band of scientist adventurers called the Hong Kong Cavaliers, although they're based in New Jersey who also put out a comic book about their exploits. That's exactly what the movie feels like, a comic book you picked up issue 47 of and are just thrown into a convoluted whirlwind adventure already in progress. It has aliens, rocket cars, long-lost twins, possessions, memorable one-liners, and John Lithgow and Christopher Lloyd having a scenery-chewing contest as the villains. The ending credits announce a sequel, but the movie, which is a lot of fun but also kind of a scattershot mess, made only $6 million on a $17 million budget, so that sequel never happened. Except I still want that sequel to happen. Why is this not a movie? I mean, I had a pitch in the back of my head, which I was saving for a week when I couldn't wrangle a guest who was short on time to edit and had to put an episode together. I wanted to talk about building a new ensemble cast around Jeff Goldblum, who has a terrific supporting role in the original, and using some made-up reverse aging science to replace Peter Weller with a younger actor. Weller, best known for RoboCop, Naked Lunch, and the best episode of Fringe, is a national treasure, but at 73, maybe not somebody you want as a lead in your action-adventure movie, and you can address the film's most problematic element. Buckaroo Banzai had the shallow affinity for Japanese culture a lot of 80s movies did, and Dr. Banzai himself is supposed to be half-Japanese, although Weller's decidedly not. But for a contemporary sequel, you can recast with a biracial actor and someone young enough to deliver a few more sequels if all goes well. I had the whole pitch figured out. I even knew what The Watermelon was for. Except now I don't have to make up a sequel because in October, we're getting Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. In book form. Earl Mac Rouch, novelist and screenwriter who created Banzai, and also scripted Scorsese's New York, New York and horror movie Strangers Watching, and has written a few Bonsai comics in the years since the film, finally managed to wrangle the convoluted rights issues surrounding Buckaroo Bonsai, and has written World Crime League as a novel that comes out in hardcover on October 5th. So as soon as that comes out, I'll get to do my Buckaroo Bonsai episode based on the book instead of my yearning for a sequel I never got to watch when I was a kid. So watch your local bookstores and this podcast in October for the Buckaroo Bonsai content Americans has been craving. Now on to this week's story. There may not be a single individual who had a greater impact on world history than Genghis Khan, with apologies to your religious figure of choice. The popular conception of Khan and his Mongol armies is that of a brutal barbarian destroying everything in his path, but the truth's more complicated and more interesting than that. And the story of his rise to power has everything you want in a story, a continent-spanning epic with murder, betrayal, intrigue, sex, massive battles, inspiring successes, and tragic flaws. Before we get into Genghis Khan's story, let's talk a little bit about our perception of him versus the reality. And excuse me if I get into hardcore history territory for a few minutes, but this is one of history's greatest stories, and barring the inexcusably bad John Wayne movie, The Conqueror, it's a story that hasn't gotten the big screen treatment it deserves. So let's talk about Genghis Khan, brutal barbarian. Did he kill lots of people? Absolutely. His armies probably killed a higher percentage of the world's population than anyone in history. Khan leveled entire cities and slaughtered their populations. The only real devil's advocate argument you can make is that in the 1200s, everyone else in the world was killing their neighbors too. Genghis was just better at it. Was he less brutal than contemporary Europeans who would execute men by hanging the until nearly dead, then castrating, disemboweling, and beheading them, then chopping their body into pieces and displaying those pieces around town for sightseers to gawk at? Of course, that's just the men and the interest in public decency. Women were merely burned at the stake. So, by 21st century standards, Khan committed countless atrocities. By 12th century standards, he wasn't that far out of line with the rest of the world. And of course, we're not nominating him for a Nobel Prize. He can be a vicious killer and be a compelling character at the heart of our movie. I just thought the context was important. And there's more context. The Mongol Empire gave its enemies no shortage of regions to be afraid, but for its citizens? At the same time Christians and Muslims were killing each other in the Crusades, the Mongol Empire had complete religious freedom. Nor was any culture or ethnicity looked down on as the empire grew, it became incredibly diverse, and remained a meritocracy. Genghis Khan realized early on his own people were remarkably good horsemen and fighters, but to manage an empire, he needed experienced administrators from China, mathematicians and scientists from the Arab world. Khan understood that every conquered people had something new to contribute. So once you were part of the Mongol Empire, you were part of the Mongol Empire, and an equal participant. And part of the benefit of that meritocracy was that there's a tremendous exchange of trade and ideas that stretched from the Pacific Ocean to Eastern Europe. The Silk Road, a trade route that stretched from eastern China to Istanbul and Cairo, had existed in some form since the 2nd century BC, and persisted until the 18th century when shipping by boat became preferable to going over land. But under the Mongol Empire, it was united under one flag, and it was said that a young woman could walk unaccompanied from one end to the other without fearing for her safety. Of course, it's a 5,000-mile walk, so it's unlikely any woman put that to the test. But a safe, unified Silk Road, to which Genghis Khan added guards and regular resupply stations, meant a tremendous amount of trade between east and west. We were taught growing up the Renaissance happened for kind of no particular reason, that Europe just collectively decided to shake off the Middle Ages and start inventing stuff and improving themselves out of the blue. In fact, the Silk Road brought Europe the technological advances the continent had missed out on during the isolation of the medieval period. Sure, Gutenberg invented movable type, but he was improving on the Chinese printing press, which used another Chinese invention, paper. The whole continent quickly switched to Arabic numerals, when we still use today, instead of clunky Roman numerals. You try calculating the volume of a shipping container that's VII feet by XX by VII and a half. So that's just some of the impact Genghis Khan had in history, but that's not our story. That's just some background on why our story matters. The story is about Genghis Khan himself. Now, this isn't strictly speaking a book adaptation, but a lot of what I know about Genghis, and what pushed the modern view that he was more complicated than just a bloodthirsty barbarian, comes from a book from Jack Weatherford called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. And that book in turn uses a much older book at its source, The Secret History of the Mongols. The Secret History was written in the mid-1200s, a few years after Genghis's death, and it's not only Mongolia's oldest surviving literary work, It's the closest thing we have to an original source in the life of Genghis Khan, and it was lost for 600 years, only rediscovered in 1872, and not translated into English until 1985, and it reads like a real-life Game of Thrones except with a satisfying ending. There are epic battles and the conquest of an entire continent, but the story is also loaded with colorful characters and plot twists and friendships and betrayal and sex and violence, and there's just too much of it for a movie. I think you have to do this as a series, and you can get many seasons out of it. There's also too much for one podcast episode. I'm not going to take you through every detail. I'll be like recapping every episode of Game of Thrones at once. But we'll go into detail in Season 1 of his early life and hit some of the highlights as our series progresses. So let's start with this. His name wasn't Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was a title he gave himself, which roughly translates to Universal King. Subsequent Mongol empires would give themselves titles like Manga Khan, Eternal King, Kublai Khan, Sky King. You get the idea. Genghis's birth name was Temujin, and his father Yusuge, and I apologize if I'm getting any of these Mongolian pronunciations wrong. There are going to be a lot of them, was a chief in the Mongol Confederation. At that time, Mongolia wasn't a unified nation, but a collection of frequently warring tribes, but Yasuge was the most prominent chief and closest thing the confederation had to a king. He had several wives, as was traditional for powerful men in that era, and he had four sons and a daughter with Temujin's mother, Holun, and two more sons with his other wife, Sochagel. Temujin was the eldest, and at age nine, Yasuge arranged a marriage to a girl's name named Borte. They wouldn't actually get married until they both came of age, but in the meantime, Temujin would live with his future bride's family, as t- was traditional. Except on the way home from dropping off his son of his future in-laws, Yusuga was poisoned by his rivals and died. One account has this happening at a wedding, so we're already well in the Game of Thrones territory, but the details aren't clear, so we can write any kind of betrayal we want into our movie. Nine-year-old Temujin returned home to take his father's place as the head of the tribe, but no one took him seriously. In fact, the tribe of Nomads planned to just keep on moving and leave Yusuge's family behind. Traditionally a widow would quickly remarry off into a brother of her late husband, but no one wanted to take on Yusuge's seven kids under the age of ten and they didn't likely want Temujin to grow up and be a rival for leadership of the group. The tribe was gearing up to move on without the family, and the secret history tells it the only objection came from an old man without much clout in the tribe, and one of the leaders just speared him to death. Young Temujin ran to his aid, but it was too late. All Temujin could do was silently rage as his tribe left him and his family to starve. Holin took charge, leading her sister, wife, and their kids, but without the support of the community, they were reduced to hunting and gathering for survival. She keeps them alive and safe from Yusuke's enemies, but this constant tension between Temujin and Begter, his slightly older half-brother, as both want to be seen as the man of the house. When Temujin would hunt or fish, Begter would often steal what he caught. Temujin went to his mother to complain, but she took Begter's side. The family drama escalated, and someone, either Begter or Holon, introduced the idea that the two of them could end up married when he was old enough. Again, it was traditional for a widow to marry a relative of her husbands, and as the eldest son of one of his other wives, Begter wasn't a blood relation to Holon, and exiled from this to the tribe she wasn't likely to have any other suitors. The prospect of his bullying half-brother marrying his mother and becoming head of the family was too much for Temujin. Still a child, he made the first of a lifetime of ruthless strikes against an enemy. He recruited his younger brother, Kassar, who was the best shot in the family. The two of them crept through the tall grass, bows and arrows at the ready, as if they were stalking a deer. They surrounded Begter, who was unarmed. He knew his number was up, but he didn't try to fight back, he didn't try to escape. He lectured them on family unity, reminding them that their real enemies were the tribe who abandoned them. Temujin was unmoved. Begter sat cross-legged in the grass as his half-brothers came closer. Finally, he made a last request, that his younger brother be spared. Temujin honored that request but not until after he and Kassar shot their arrows into Begter, one in the chest, one in the back, and left him to die. Holin was furious. Her angry, rant at her murderous son is the longest passage in secret history. But Begter's last words came true. The family did have worse enemies than each other. Killing a family member made Temujin a criminal in the eyes of their former tribe, and it gave them excuse to come back and hunt him down. The family fled into the mountains, but the tribe caught them and took Temujin prisoner. He was treated as a prisoner of war and strapped into a device called a kang. Similar to an ox yoke, it let him stand and walk, but immobilized his hands so he couldn't even feed himself. He was passed from family to family, each taking a turn guarding the prisoner. But some of these families were sympathetic. They themselves had been captives, now living as servants to the more powerful members of the tribe. So Temujin tried his best to befriend whoever he could and bided his time. And history doesn't record how much time. He may have been a prisoner for a few months, he may have been a slave for several years, it's not clear. But he did escape. One night when the men were all getting drunk, he was left in the care of a boy probably not much older than him. Temujin seized the moment, swinging the kang around and hitting the boy in the head knocking him out. Knowing he couldn't escape on foot, Temujin, hid by a riverbank, the father of one of the servant families he befriended, found him, and, instead of sounding the alarm, hid him in his own home, broke open the can, and gave Temujin food and a horse, and helped him escape. In Weatherford's book, he points to this as a defining moment for the future Genghis Khan. The elite of the tribe abandoned his family the moment it was advantageous to them. But this family of servants, who had no kinship to him, risked their lives to help him. For the rest of his life, Temujin would mistrust elites, and trust people based on their actions. The seeds of Genghis Khan's meritocracy were planted during Temujin's escape. The story picks up again when Temujin turned 16. Remarkably, his family had forgiven him, even begged for his mother and brother. Not only that, his intended bride, Borte, who he had only known briefly seven years earlier, was still waiting for him. Her family were still amenable to the marriage, even though Temujin was now an outcast. Traditionally, the bride's family would give a gift to the groom's father. Since his father was dead, Temujin asked an old ally of his father's, Khan, to accept the gift in his stead. Doing so sealed an alliance between the two men, which restored Temujin's legitimacy within the tribe. He secured a marriage and his family's safety, everything worked out in the end, and Temujin was content to be a simple nomad and take care of his extended family. Except, of course, that's not what happened. You know how season finales go, where all the year-long plot threads are tied up, but there's a gut punch right at the end to set up season two? Here's how our season one ends. Shortly after Temujin and Borte are married, a rival tribe, the Merkits, attack the family camp, and kidnap Borte. Temujin vowed to rescue her, but it took months, and in the meantime, he's helpless. So now we open season two with a flashback. After arranged marriages, kidnapping was the second most common way of finding a wife in 13th century Mongolia. In fact, that's how Temujin's parents met. Holun was known as Great Beauty and, as a teenager, married a man named Chilidu. They likely would have had a long courtship with Chilidu living with her family just as Temujin was supposed to live with his future in-laws. But after they were married, the newlyweds were traveling after the wedding, essentially on their honeymoon, and Yusuge and his two brothers chased them down. The young couple tried to outrun their pursuers but realizing they couldn't escape together, Holun insisted her husband flee as he would surely be killed. She stayed behind, allowing herself to be kidnapped to save Chilidu's life. Yusugi was claiming her as his own wife, and soon after, Temujin was born. Chilidu's tribe? The Merkits. They hadn't forgotten Holon's kidnapping. Instead of trying to steal her back, they bided their time for 17 years and kidnapped her daughter-in-law's revenge. And they were too powerful, Temujin, to attack just with his family and a few friends at his side. So he's faced with another critical moment in his life, ones that ended up changing the course of human history. He can do what Chilidu did and give up. Or he can build an army and fight back. By all accounts, after Temujin's rough early life, all he wanted was to keep his family fed and live in peace apart from the squabbles of other Mongols. But Borte's kidnapping made him realize he would spend his whole life being pushed around by more powerful men unless he pushed back. He went to Ong Khan, his father figure. Luckily, Ong had an old grudge against the Merkits himself and he agreed to help. Then he went to Jamuka, a childhood friend who was essentially a blood brother. By this point, Jamukha had become a leader within the tribe and his followers agreed to fight as well. Now Temujin had a small army. They rode down the mountains and onto the steps where the Merkits were camped out. Borte, worried that there was some new enemy that could kidnap her, hides in a cart, but as Ong Khan's men fight the murkets and pillage their camp, she hears Temujin calling for her. In the confusion, Temujin nearly runs over with his horse, but she grabs the reins, and there's a tearful reunion between Temujin and his bride, who is very clearly pregnant. Was the baby conceived before she was kidnapped or after? We don't know. We don't know if she knew. But when the baby was born, a boy they named Jochi, Temujin accepted him as his own. Temujin and Borte would go on to have three more sons and six daughters— And his eldest, Jochi should have been his heir. But as his paternity was always in question, his brothers refused to accept him as the Great Khan's successor, although it didn't matter because he died before his father did. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Temujin didn't just return from the raid on Merkis with his family intact. He returned with a reputation as a warrior. Any ideas he had of becoming a peaceful nomad were gone. He rode alongside Jumuka as his right-hand man. The two became close again, and Jumuka treated him like a brother. But we all know how it happened to Temujin's last older brother. Once again, Temujin couldn't stand to be second fiddle. But this time, instead of letting things escalate to violence, he simply left. He and his family eventually snuck away from Jumuqa's tribe, except this time, instead of being an outcast, Temujin was a leader. Plenty of Jumuqa's followers were with his charismatic younger lieutenant. Jumuqa let them go, but he and Temujin became sworn rivals and spent years poaching or killing each other's followers, while each wanted to be the one to unite rival tribes under one Khan for the first time in generations. Finally, at age 27, Temujin made his play. He publicly gave himself the title Khan, not of all the Mongols, but of his own followers. There was a chance he wouldn't be taken seriously when falling on his face, but that didn't happen. The title gave him more legitimacy and more followers. But not as far as Jamuka was concerned. Jamuka was from an old, aristocratic family, and he couldn't accept his former follower, once an enslaved outcast, as a leader, much less one who now outranked him. Jamuka rallied his followers and attacked. It was a small battle by our story's standards, one or two hundred men on a side, but it's remarkable because something happened that won't happen often in this story. Temujin lost. And to make his point, Jamuka got brutal revenge on his rival's followers. He boiled captives alive. Dismembering a body was a strict taboo among the Mongols, but Jamuka cut the head off of one of Temujin's lieutenants and tied it to his horse's tail. A severed head bouncing off of a horse's ass over and over again was an unthinkable humiliation. Jamukha had won, but his cruelty horrified other Mongols, and he lost public support while Temujin's army regrouped, and he continued to gain followers and respect. This is probably the thrust of our season 3, the rivalry between these two men, but something else happens that has tremendous repercussions down the line. Temujin meets the Chinese. Even as leader of his own tribe, he was still subordinate to Ong Khan as mentor and would fight alongside him. And Ong asked Temujin to join him for one big score, a raid against the Tatars, who were a buffer state between the disorganized Mongol tribes of the steppes and the Empire of the Song dynasty to the south. The Tatars were far wealthier than their Mongol neighbors because they were able to trade with the Chinese neighbors on the other side. Even their children dressed in silk and wore gold jewelry, unimaginable riches to someone like Temujin who grew up in abject poverty and had spent his whole life living in a tent that got packed up and moved from place to place. The young Khan realized two things. As rich as the Tatar's were, the Chinese were even richer. And things stayed that way because the Mongols were busy fighting each other over small potatoes. And they were fighting in an endless cycle. One tribe would raid another, the loser would lick their wounds, rebuild, and then come back for revenge. So Temujin broke the cycle. Now when he fought another tribe, he killed their leaders and absorbed the other members into his own group. But he did two important things. He took the executed leader's land, and instead of keeping it for himself, divided it up among their former subjects. Imagine somebody buys the company you work for, fires your boss, gives you a big raise, puts you in charge of the company, now a subsidiary of Genghis Khan Enterprises LLC. That's a pretty good deal for you, and it put a lot of t- loyalty to Temujin from his new subjects. This was also the start of his meritocracy. Every time he absorbed another tribe, he killed the aristocratic elites, but elevated the common folks. When he raided an enemy, instead of each individual soldier grabbing what they could, all the loot went to Temujin, and it would, he would divide it up based on who he felt was deserving, and he gave widows and orphans the same share he gave soldiers. After every conquest, he would also find a child orphan from the battle and adopt them into his own family. The message was clear, these new tribes weren't prisoners, they were part of the family now. Except not everyone was happy about Temujin's grow- growing family. Ong Khan, his mentor, was getting on in years, and Temujin proposed a marriage between Ang's daughter and Jochi, Temujin's Ozil's son. Despite their long alliance, Ong still saw him himself as an aristocrat and Temujin as a wild upstart, and disapproved of the marriage. But he also began to see his young protege as a threat, one who would soon be too powerful to stop so he planned his own red wedding. He sent a message to Temujin approving the marriage and asked for a meeting in person. The young Khan rode with only a small group of men and when they were a day's ride away from Ong, word somehow got to him they were riding into a trap. Ong Khan had an army ready and waiting. Temujin ordered his men to scatter for their own safety and he ran for his life back to his own territory with Ong's army in pursuit. Waterford's book called What Happened Next The Greatest Trial and Triumph of the Future Genghis Khan's Life. Exhausted, starving, with only 19 men still with him, Temujin made camp on the shore of Lake Baljuna. He toasted his men with muddy lake water, swearing never to forget their loyalties, the Mongolian equivalent to the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, the moment when the young upstart crystallizes into the inspiring leader who would conquer half the world. In that moment, Ong Khan was triumphant, and Temujin's forces were scattered. But he was a brilliant strategist who had already built a disciplined and loyal army. He sent word across the steppe to his soldiers to quietly assemble the army. Even some of Ong's men quietly switched sides. Rather than ride directly across the plains and be seen coming a mile away... Temujin took his army through a mountain pass he knew to be unguarded. Ong was having a feast celebrating his victory, assuming Temujin's army was scattered to the wind and the threat was neutralized. Instead, the army overran the feast, took Ong's army so completely by surprise in the chaos, most of his soldiers either ran away or defected to Temujin's side. Temujin only had one last fight to unite all the Mongols under his battle, against the largest remaining faction, the Naiman. And history gives us the perfect plot twist, as his old enemy, Jamuka, running short on allies had joined up with the Naiman as the last hope to stop Temujin from ruling over all the Mongols, which he still had hopes of doing himself. So our season three ends with the biggest battle yet. Temujin had a bigger army than he's ever commanded, but the Naiman army is even bigger, so he beats them with strategy. He sends small groups of horse-mounted archers to take a few shots, maybe injure a few enemies, and then ride right away to safety, so the enemy didn't know how many attackers there were in total or what the direction they would come from next. He then sent a small force in to deliberately lose, retreat, and then lead the pursuers into a trap of a larger army waiting. And after he wins the first skirmish, instead of pressing the advantage and doing more damage, he just sits and waits. The enemy is unnerved, not knowing what he's going to do next or when he's going to strike. But Temujin's army camps for the night. He has every unit light five campfires, so it looks like it's many times larger than it is. Overnight, Naiman's soldiers start to slip away and retreat, thinking they're facing an overwhelming force. And so many of them leave that by the next day, the ones who stay actually are facing an overwhelming force. Temujin wins. He now rules over all the Mongols and gives himself the title Genghis Khan. And then history gives us the perfect emotional beat for a season finale. Jamukha escapes the battle, spends a little time on the run, and then his own men turn on him and turn him over to Genghis. The secret history of the Mongols lays the scene out in detail and it's fantastic. Jamukha's men bring him before Temujin. Now loyalty has always been of the utmost importance to Temujin, it's a theme throughout the whole story. So he has Jamukha's men executed for betraying their leader, and he forgives Jamukha. He makes a big speech about how they were once brothers and surely all the years they were fighting, that kinship still remained. Jamuka, for his part, acknowledges that Khan was pitting the two of them against each other because he feared either one of them supplanting him. But Jamuka can't accept his rival's forgiveness. He says, What use is there in my becoming a companion to you? On the contrary, sworn brother, in the black night I would haunt your dreams, in the bright sky I would trouble your heart, I would be the louse in your collar, I would be the splinter in your door. He can't ask for forgiveness, and I get the sense he doesn't want to live in a world where his rival rules over the whole Mongol nation, and he's a failure. So he asks for death. His only request would be killed without bloodshed in the manner of aristocrats at that time, and that he'd be buried on a mountain so his spirit can watch over Genghis Khan as he rules his new empire. It's such a terrific final scene for villains like Michael B. Jordan and Black Panther, except it really happened, at least according to this ancient historical recounting of the scene. Now we have several more scenes of the show ahead of us, and I'm not going to go through them in quite so much detail. We've heard enough you get the idea of what the story is like. In the later seasons of the stuff from the history books. He conquers his neighbors. He conquers their neighbors. He conquers their neighbors. He unites northern China, which at the time was ruled by several rival dynasties. He moves west and conquers Central Asia. He moves north and conquers Russia. There's no army on earth that can stop him. The border of his empire ends up being defined by terrain, not by enemy armies. His army was mounted on horseback, so when he reached somewhere, horses couldn't easily go. The Himalayas, the Sea of Japan, the Saudi Desert. Then he stopped his advance. The bare bones of the story get a little monotonous here. Genghis wins a battle. He wins another battle. He conquers more people. We're actually, we actually are tired of all this winning. But he changes as his empire grows. In some ways he never changes, he becomes the most powerful man in the world, maybe the most powerful man in the history of the world, and at the end of his days he lives in a tent like a nomad. Even as his power grows, he still hates aristocracy and decadence, lives the simple life of a nomad, just a nomad who happens to to rule the largest empire in history. But as that empire grows, his tactics change. In his early foreign conquests, he used the same tactic he did with the rival Mongol tribes, kill the leaders, share the wealth of the common folk, they're now part of the family. But as he went further west, he lost patience for that. His new motto became, surrender or die. If you ran up the white flag, welcome to the family. If you didn't, well here's where the br- brutal reputation of Genghis Khan comes from. He sometimes destroyed whole cities, and populations were either enslaved or put to death. The last campaign of his life was part of southwestern China called Western Jia. He expanded his empire westward to the Caspian Sea, then backtracked and moved south on the rest of China. History knows almost nothing about the people of Western Jia, because after Genghis Khan was done, there was nothing left. It wasn't genocide, strictly speaking, because most of the Jia population were integrated into the Mongol Empire. Wikipedia uses the word ethnocide. Their entire culture was wiped out, and only a few fragments remain for historians to ponder. But that was his last campaign. And this is one of the only parts of the story we can't base directly on real life, because not even the secret history of the Mongols records how he dies. Genghis Khan might have died in battle, he might have been wounded and killed by infection later. Six months earlier, he had been thrown from a horse, so he may have had lingering internal injuries from that. He may have simply got sick and died. This wasn't an Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar being cut down in their prime. Genghis was in his late 60s, maybe early 70s when he died, so it could have been natural causes. We don't know. And his death is further shrouded in mystery because his burial site was kept a secret. He'd asked to be buried without any markings or any signs, and his executors took that to the extreme. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Genghis was buried in a mountain called Burkhan Khaldun. It was a sacred spot since long before he was born, and throughout the story he often returns there to pray or escape or find peace between battles. So they buried Genghis Khan there, and they forbid anyone other than the royal family to come within a 10-mile radius of the mountain. And no one did ever. Trespassing was punishable by death, and entering the region of the Great Khan's burial site became a massive taboo in Mongolian society, even long after the empire had collapsed. Even during the Soviet era, when Mongolia was a client state of the USSR, the Communist Party was worried about Khan's tomb being a rallying point for nationalist sentiment, so they sealed off an even larger area outside the Forbidden Zone, and there are still remains of Soviet weaponry there rusting today. Only in the last 20 years have a handful of archaeologists been allowed to explore the area, and are the only people to walk that land in the last 800 years. I don't think there's really a way to put that into a series, but I've never heard of anything like it in human history, so I had to tell that part of the story. But let's get back to our story and our series. A few seasons of conquest and Genghis Khan had built an empire stretching from the Korean Peninsula to the Caspian Sea. And now he was gone and someone else had to take over. As Genghis got older, the family insisted that he settled the matter of succession while he was still alive. Jochi, the oldest, was a natural choice, but remember he was born shortly after his mother was kidnapped and his paternity was in question. The second son, Chagatai, objected strongly, knowing that if he could get Jochi out of the consideration, he was next in line. But this just pissed off Genghis, to the point where he passed over both of them for the third son, Ogadai, who was seen as more responsible than his brothers. Again, you have Genghis's love of meritocracy, and you also have a little bit of a Corleone family, with Chagatai as the hothead, Ogadai as the guy who calmly takes care of business. It's not really fair to compare Jochi to Fredo, he was a very effective general for his father. But he did have a softer touch and was known for showing mercy where other members of the family would have simply had their enemies killed. And there was a fourth brother, Tului, but as the youngest, he was never seen as a contender for the throne. Genghis also divided his empire into parts before he died, so each of his children would get something to rule, hoping that would cut down on resentments between them when one of them took over as Khan. Ogade, the heir to the throne, got the eastern part of the empire. Eventually this would pass to one of Tului's children, Kublai Khan, who had found the Yuan dynasty, and turned that Khanate into modern China. Chagatai was given the central part of the empire, stretching into what's now northern Iran. Jochi was given the northwestern part of the empire, which would become Russia. Portolui got a small parcel of land of Mongolia, and that was it. And Genghis's daughters would rule Mongolia itself. While women's rights obviously had a long way to go in the 13th century, they did improve under Genghis Khan. Both his mother and first wife had been kidnapped and forced into marriage, so he banned that practice under severe penalty. Both these women were among his most trusted advisors throughout his life, and he raised his daughters to be leaders, same as his sons. While he was still alive, he put his daughter Alakai in charge of much of China, giving her the title of the princess who runs the state. When Temujin conquered the Oirats, the northernmost Mongol tribe, he married their chief to his daughter, Chechekin, Then he took the groom into battle with him and left the, behi- the bride behind to rule over the Oirats. But he left it to his sons to rule the empire after he was gone. So Ogatai takes over, and now we're in, let's say, Season 6. Now, Ogatai isn't the military commander his father was, but he's also smart enough to know that. He leaves it to Genghis's generals to continue the conquering, while he sets out to turn the tri- giant tribal empire Genghis built into a real country. He builds a capital city, Karakorum. He builds a palace. He adopts Chinese-style bureaucracy to manage things they would be safe in assuming that with a rational, measured national bureaucrat in charge, the expansion of the empire would slow down. You'd be wrong, it speeds up. Genghis's greatest general, Subodai, was considered one of the greatest military leaders who ever lived. He helped Genghis conquer the largest empire the world had ever seen to that point. By the time Ogadai took over, Subodai was in his 60s, had one eye, and was too fat to ride a horse. But he still had a brilliant military mind, and he discovered something on his travels he now shared with the new Khan. Europe. A decade earlier, when he was conquering Persia for Genghis Khan... Subutai made a sneak attack by going all the way around the Caspian Sea. It worked, but he was curious about what lay to the north. There was land unknown to the Mongols, and Genghis gave him the okay to take a force of 20,000 men to scout. What they discovered was the kingdom of Georgia. When the Mongols started to loot the kingdom, pale-skinned men in metal armor rode out to meet them. Georgia had been in the middle of raising a large army for the Fifth Crusade. Subutai soundly defeated them and set up Georgia as a client state for the Mongol Empire. So now years have passed and he wants to go back for more. Europe was completely unknown to the Mongols, and for all they knew, it contained even greater riches than China had. Spoiler alert, it did not. It was the Dark Ages in Europe. Ogadai didn't entirely trust Subodai, as he'd been closer with Jochi and was still close with Jochi's family. And he had his eyes on the Song Dynasty, which was now southern China. So Ogadai decided to do something his father never had, split up the army and fight a war on two fronts 5,000 miles apart. No army had ever operated over such a vast distance, and no army would again until World War II. Ogadai's sons would lead three armies south. Subutai with Jochi's son Batu leading in the field, would ride west for Europe. Jack Weatherford in his book calls it probably the worst decision in the history of the Mongol Empire. Ogedai's sons won a few victories over the Sung, but were eventually pushed back and it would be 40 years before the Mongols would eventually absorb the Sung dynasty. The European front went better. Subutai was a brilliant strategist who had learned at the right hand of Genghis himself. Except now he had the best military technology both the Chinese and the Muslim world had to offer. Catapults. Gunpowder. Weatherford again suggests his army of 150,000 men surpassed even Genghis's own army at its peak. Subedai sent scouts across Eastern Europe a year in advance to get the lay of the land and see what resistance they would meet. He had advanced scouts burn crops, and by the time the army did get there, the land would be grazing land for the horses. His campaign was brilliantly planned and brilliantly executed. First, Subodai set his sights on Hungary. The Hungarian king knew of the Mongols and their tactics from their invasion of Russia, and was as well prepared as anyone in Europe could have been. But the bulk of Europe was busy with the crusades, so he was only able to enlist the help of his neighbor Poland. Subodai simply invaded Hungary and Poland at once. He not only defeated them both handily, and made it as far as Austria. Then he turned to Germany. At the time, Germany was a loose confederation of states, but after Hungary and Poland fell, they got their act together and united their forces as well as allies from France. They even conscripted gold miners in a desperate attempt to build up their army. Subodai crushed them. The European knights and their heavy army were no match for the fleet-footed Mongol horsemen who now controlled Eastern Europe. The rest of Europe was woken up to the Mongol threat. They called the Mongols Tartars, conflating them with one of the early people that they had conquered, but also with Tartarus, the Greek word for hell. There was an army from Hell destroying everything in its path, and the next thing in its path was the Holy Roman Empire. Except as Subdai is planning his invasion of the largest empire in Europe, he gets news from the West. Ogadai is dead. After 12 years of great Khan, he drank himself to death, just as his younger brother Tolui had a few years earlier. And now we get to Genghis Khan's fatal flaw. He raised his daughters to be smart, capable, independent leaders, and his sons grew to be drunken louts. And none of them outlived Ogadai, And his favorite son and natural successor, died in the disastrous campaigning of the Song. So the empire was without an emperor. Subodai wanted to continue his campaign in Europe, but every member of the royal family and his army agreed they had to return to the capital to settle the succession. It took five years, during which time Ogatai's widow, Torijin, ruled in his stead. She maneuvered her son, Goyak Genghis's grandson, onto the throne. Wikipedia describes him as surprisingly capable, but after two years on the throne, he also died, and again, it's not clear how. It may have been natural causes, he may have been killed in a brawl, he may have been poisoned. In any case, his widow, Ogul, took over as regent, but she couldn't manage to get one of their sons onto the throne. Instead, the family chose Monge, the eldest son of Tolui. Monge was a competent Khan who introduced paper money and conducted a census and conquered the Song dynasty that his uncle had failed to, as well as Vietnam and Tibet. Not a little drama, but after six years in office, he dies, either in battle or of cholera, depending on which history you read. And a civil war breaks out between supporters of his two brothers, Eric Boke and Kublai Khan. Eric assumes the throne immediately, while Kublai was away from the capital. So Kublai declared himself emperor of China, founding the Yuan dynasty. Karakorum, the Mongol capital, was by this point so large it was dependent on of them the food, so Kublai cut them off. A harsh winter hit, Arik couldn't feed his followers, so he surrendered. Kublai Khan was now in charge, but he alienated the other branches of the family by trying to publicly shame Arik, and he lost control of the other Khanates. So the empire split up. Jochi's descendants ruled Russia as tsars until 1500. Chagatai's branch of the family ruled Central Asia, and while their kingdom splintered, Chagatai's heirs still ruled what's now the westernmost part of China as recently as 1700. Hulagu Khan, another of Tulu's sons, took over the Middle Eastern part of the empire and established the Ilkhanate, which stretched from Iran to Turkey, although it fell apart in the 1300s and the Black Plague wiped out most of its leadership. Kublai's Yuan dynasty gave way to the Ming dynasty a little more than a century later, but he had united China and it largely stayed that way. But that was the end of the globe spanning empire Genghis Khan built. I'm not sure we want to end our series on such a down note. There's a lot of drama in the various fights over succession. But all the characters in Genghis's life were invested in are gone. So I think the series ends with the death of Ogadai and the great historical what if. Had he lived even a few more years? Would Subadai have gone on to conquer the rest of Europe? Would Ogadai have set up a clear successor and built a stable empire that stretched from ocean to ocean? Maybe that's the note to end on. The open question of how world history might have taken a different path, and the uncertainty Subadai rides back to of who would rule after Ogadai, whether they could keep an empire together twice as large as any that had come before. If there's one more story. We'll talk about the woman who rebuilt Genghis Khan's legacy, plus our extensive cast, after a quick message. We've Will had a lot of talented be. creative people on this show, and I always try to point listeners to their most recent work. But two past guests have put out graphic novels since their episodes aired, and I just wanted to give a plug to both. Ted Anderson, who pitched a Jack Kirby biopic in episode 18 back in February, recently published The Spy Who Raised Me, about a teenage girl who discovers she's been brainwashed to have no memory of her double life as a super spy, and the handler who trained her and altered her memory is her own mother. Colleen Eif Venable, who was one of only our third guest back when the show was getting off the ground last fall, was already a National Book Award nominee for her YA graphic novel Kiss No. 8, and has since put out Katie the Cat Sitter, a middle-grade graphic novel about a teenage girl who takes a job cat-sitting for her neighbor, only to find out her neighbor has 217 cats and a terrible secret. It's a charming, funny story and ideal for the kid in your life who would like the Dogman series but is more of a cat person. And there's a sequel already on the way. Now back to the Mongols. So we have the ending to our series, except there's one more terrific story about Genghis Khan's legacy. It starts in 1478, more than two centuries after Ogadai's death and long after Genghis's empire had disintegrated. Even Mongolia itself had devolved back into warring factions. Into the ruling family of one of those factions was born Mandakai. When she turned 16, she was married to Mandul Khan, a minor noble from the northern Yuan dynasty, a remnant of Kublai Khan's dynasty that still controlled a little bit of northern China after the Ming dynasty took over the rest of the country. The northern Yuan were also splintered and leaderless, but ten years after marrying Mandakai, Mandul managed to unify them, and then after only a few years he died. Mandul hadn't had any children, with Mandakaior's previous wife, but at some point before he died, she had discovered a child named Batumunk, who was claimed to be the last direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Over the centuries since the great Khan died, his direct male-line descendants had been killed off in one power struggle or another. In fact, if you were a descendant of Genghis, you had a target on your back because any more distant relative's claim on the throne was shaky if a real, honest-to-goodness, legitimate heir of Genghis himself was around. So a lot of rulers made a point to kill his surviving heirs to protect their own claims to power. And knowing this, Batumunk's mother raised him in secret after her family lost power, But then she died, so he was an orphan when Mandakai found him. So this young child might have been the last legitimate to Genghis Khan left. He also might have been some random kid. But Mandakai was able to convince people he was the real deal. She adopted him and proclaimed him Dayan Khan. Now ordinarily, with her husband dead and childless, she would have been pushed aside pretty quickly. But she was able to play off the myth of Dayan Khan, heir to Genghis' legacy, and put him on the throne in her husband's place. Except Dayan Khan was seven. So as queen mother, Mandakai now ruled the northern Yuan. And here's what gets a little creepy, is after adopting Dayan Khan, Once he turned 19, she also married him and they had eight kids. Not sure that was acceptable behavior even by the standards of the 1400s, but by that point, no one was going to question Mandakai as whatever her relation to Dian Khan was, she was the real power in Mongolia. And just like Genghis before her, she set her sights on unifying all the Mongols. And she does so while fighting off the Ming Dynasty the whole time. And when I say fighting, I don't mean sending armies off to war in her son's name. I mean riding at the head of an army sword in hand. In fact, there's a story of her riding into battle while she's heavily pregnant. Her lieutenants try and stop her, and she gives this speech about how If she wins this battle, her children will rule as kings, and even if she loses, she'd rather them not be born than live with the shame of her backing down from a fight. And then in the middle of the days-long battle, she gives birth, two twins, and then goes back to fighting. She was a badass on a historic level, and the Chinese knew it because they were afraid enough of Mandakai, once she did unite the Mongols, they built an entire section of the Great Wall just to keep her out. It's a great story, but where does the story fit into our Genghis Khan series? I don't know. Maybe we do six seasons in a movie, and this is our movie. Maybe this is like the Game of Thrones prequel shows they kept teasing and never produced, where we do a series finale with the Mongols backing away from conquering Europe. The fans are still hungry for more, so we do a limited series of one season, and then we walk away before they get sick of us. Or maybe it doesn't fit in at all, but it's a good story, and it's my podcast, and I like to tell stories. Which brings us to the question of which director should we want to tell this story? Now, if it's a long-running TV series, there's not going to be one director. But a lot of prestige TV will bring in a big-name director just to kick things off and sort of set the tone the way John Favreau did with Mandalorian or Martin Scorsese did with Boardwalk Empire. So the obvious first name on the list is Ang Lee, whose Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is still the high watermark for historical action and adventure epics even 20 years after it came out. Uh, there's also Zhang Yimou, who did Hero and House of Flying Daggers, and The Great Wall, which was very, very dumb, but showed again he can carry off the kind of epic battle scenes we need here. And Chloe Zhao, whose Vistas of the American West would probably translate well to the Mongolian steppe, and of course she's a Marvel director now, so she can also handle the epic scope and blockbuster feel that I think we want for our series. Another less known choice is Kim Ji-Woon, a Korean director who did The Good, The Bad, The Weird, which was this tremendously entertaining Korean Western with these just bananas over the top action scenes. He also did in America, he did The Last Stand, that movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger is a small town sheriff who has to fend off an invasion of, I don't know, bad guys. So he does have a little bit of a track record in Hollywood, mostly Good, Good, The Bad, The Weird was just so much fun and so full of weird idiosyncratic touches, and I've been waiting to see him do another movie like that. And I do think it makes sense for an Asian director to tell this story. But it also happens there's a lot of Asian directors who work and include some combination of epic battle scenes and wide-open wild spaces. Unless you want to bring John Ford back from the dead, there aren't too many current directors who specialize in that stuff. But there are also some veteran TV directors you can bring in for this kind of show once we get going. I often mention Michelle McLaren, who directed key episodes of Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad, to somebody who deserves more work. Uh, There's also Kieran Donnelly. He's worked on Vikings and the Tudors, so he's got the chops for bloodthirsty medieval battle scenes and backstabbing politics. So we've got some directors we can cycle through. Before we talk about actors, just a couple notes on casting. For one, this is an epic story that takes place over maybe 75 years because Genghis Khan lived about 70. So there's going to be a lot of aging up and down of some of these actors to the point where I have some actors who are the same age playing like parent and child just because, you know, the parent starts off in their 20s and ends up in their 60s. So I just picked actors I thought fit the character the best and we can leave it to the makeup department to age them appropriately for the, uh, you know, part of the story that they're in. The other thing is that most of these characters are Central Asian, and I don't know a ton of Central Asian actors, so it's a pan-Asian cast, and this would really have to be an all-hands-on-deck effort from Asian-American actors, because there's just so many characters in the story. But we're just going to focus on some of the key figures, and we have to start with Genghis Khan. My first choice there is Steven Yun, who's coming off a of Best Actor nomination for Minari, and had been on The Walking Dead for many years, so he can handle some of the action stuff, he can do a long-running series, but mostly you just need somebody with the dramatic chops to play Genghis Khan as a complicated figure, as somebody who can be incredibly violent and ruthless and brutal, but still have that character be somebody you sympathize with and want to see take over the world. I think seeing Liu could also work. He's about to blow up as the star of Shang-Chi, and he's a former stuntman, which would be a big plus for all these battle scenes. But I just think we've seen more from Yun as a dramatic actor. So instead, I'm thinking we put Liu as Ogadai. And again, you know, the aging doesn't really make sense. Uh, Liu is only five years younger than Yun, and he'd he'd be playing his son. But by that point in the story where Ogadai becomes important... Then Genghis is, you know, in his 60s. So Liu plays Ogadai when he's an adult and takes over the Empire. And, you know, maybe a younger actor plays him as a child. Which is something you also have to do for Temujin because there's a lot of his childhood in this series. So for nine-year-old Temujin, who meets young Borte and then rushes back when his father dies, I like nine-year-old Alan S. Kim, Yun's co-star from Minari, who was so good in that movie last year. If you listen to our Snubby Awards episode, where they really thought he deserved a Best Supporting Actor. And for teenage Temujin... Ivy and Chen from Fresh Off the Boat in Shazam. We've mostly seen lighter comedic stuff from him, but frankly, there weren't a ton of teenage Asian actors to choose from. All the young actors I could think of ended up being like in their 20s and sort of aged past this point. But I like what I've seen of Chen, and I'd love to see him rise to the occasion as the angry young man who kills his brother. And this might seem like stunt casting, but I have Force Wheeler, who plays Chen's brother on Fresh Off the Boat, as Begter, the half-brother Temujin kills jeopardizing the family. We know they can play brothers, and again, I didn't have any the age range that I liked better. Now, the other key family is Holon, Temujin's mother. I mentioned earlier that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is still the high watermark for historical action-adventure. And a big part of the reason that was Zhang Zi, who, at maybe 20, was a winning ingenue, a compelling dramatic actress, and a remarkable stunt performer, all in the same film. And yet, is still somebody we haven't seen enough of in this country. After Crouching Tiger, she did a couple more Hollywood films, Memoirs of a Geisha, and then she went back to China, and she's been working steadily there. And just in recent years, she's come back to Hollywood. She was in The Cloverfield Paradox and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, so I think we can lure her back for our series. But I think you also need a younger actor for the flashback when Holien's a teenage bride who's kidnapped by Genghis's father. I thought about Lana Condor who carried the To All the Boys I've Loved Before movies but hasn't gotten a lot of work outside of that. But I settled on Lyra Kakano from Runaways who's just done a little bit more dramatic stuff and looks enough like a young Zhang Z to play the same character. Although speaking of romantic comedy leads, uh, for Yasuge, Genghis's father, I had Henry Golding who's usually just very handsome and charming and i'd kind of love to see him do a heel turn as a guy who meets his wife by kidnapping her and for gengis's wife borte i like sonoya mizuno from devs who just has this very quiet intensity which i think you want for somebody who at different points in the story is either helpless or the most trusted advisor of the most powerful person in the world and she's about the same age as yun and she's just great in what i've seen her in so far and would love to see her get more work for Ankon, uh Gang's mentor, who eventually turns on him, I had Song Kong ho from Parasite, uh, mostly because he was just great in that, and I would love to see him in more stuff, and he's old enough that he could be the you know, elder mentor to Steven Yeun. And then there's a small but crucial role of Jamuka, Temujin's rival. This needs to be somebody who can make a big impression with you know, a handful of scenes and really carry a lot of emotional hefts. So I'm going with John Cho, who I considered for Temujin himself, but he's almost 50 and maybe a little bit too old to age down to like young Temujin, before he's Genghis Khan. I mean, even though he hasn't shown his age at all, uh, I just wanted somebody you know, a little bit younger. But you also, of course, you want John Cho in your movie, and Jamuka seems like the perfect spot for somebody who can bring a lot of emotional heft in a you know, handful of small scenes. For Subadai, the great general, he, he is kind of in the story as a younger man because he's Genghis Khan's right hand for a lot of, this, a lot of his conquest of the world. But the main part where he comes to the story is when he's older, And trying to keep the conquest going under Ogadai, so I was thinking yun Fat to go back to Crouching Tiger again, who is now in his 60s, and I think it'd sell the hell out of this role as like a world weary veteran who is a little bit too old to you know do all the fighting he used to do in his prime, but still has this brilliant mind and just wants to keep things going and keep you know keep conquering the world. And another possibility there's Jackie Chan, who's about the same age and has also he's aged out of the like just otherworldly stunt work that he used to do. And has been trying to do more serious roles. And this seems like a good place you could stick him in a serious role. And also just like, who doesn't love Jackie Chan? It would be a nice victory lap to have him, you know, as the elder statesman in, the, in this series. And then if you are going go to do Mandakai, I'm going to go back to Parasite again for Park Dam, who was so good in that. And so good at just changing her persona from, you know, one moment to the next based on the situation. Which I know is what actors do, but she just did it especially well in that role. And again, the story covers a lot of her life and so you go with somebody older maybe jim and chan somebody like that but i think you want uh park is 29 and i think you want somebody who's younger because i think you want to start mandakai as somebody who would be seen as a vulnerable young woman by the people around her and then realize she has the spine of steel and the willpower to unite the mongols again and fight the chinese and you know build another empire even if it's on a smaller scale than genghis's so that's about it for the cast but this is also a sprawling story with lots of side characters that, you know, some of which we didn't even get into in the story for the sake of keeping this under an hour. So really any, you know, Asian, Asian-American actor that you like, there's a room for them in this story because there's so many colorful characters and great scenes and plot twists. And if you want to get into the story at length, I highly recommend Jack Weatherford's book, Genghis Khan, and The Making of the Modern World, and his sequel to it, The Secret History of the Mongol Queens, which is where Mandakai's story comes, but also the immediate aftermath of Genghis's death and how his daughters continued to manage Mongolia, and then how one of his daughters-in-law was instrumental in putting Kublai Khan onto the, onto the throne and founding the Yuan dynasty. And it's a look that focuses on the women of the Mongol Empire that's every bit as much drama and intrigue as the story about Genghis himself. So that's our, I guess, that's our movie, that's our series. If you have any thoughts on Genghis Khan or ideas for other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at YMovie. You can find my column, Wookie Wormhole, in the AV Club every Sunday, and you can read student journalism, hear college radio, and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. Stay safe out there, get your shot, keep yourself sane, and we'll be back next time on... Why, 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 why is